Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray contemplating a long iron approach to a par four in this brave new world of the rolled back ball. Oh, hang on a minute. That's not right. I don't have to use the rolled back ball, do I? No, you don't. I've still got a long iron approach to the par four, but not because of the ball, unless I qualify, of course, for an elite competition. And let's be honest, what are the chances of that? The great rollback debate has begun, and not surprisingly, there's a mountain of confusion and misinformation out there on exactly what's been proposed and how it might affect the game. So today, we welcome one of the founders of an organisation called the Rollback Alliance to talk about the who, what, when, where, how, and why of a shorter flying golf ball. Matt Mollicker along in just a moment. Before we bring Matt in, let's meet the rest of the good, good team, starting with Mr. Movies, Watches and Paths himself, Adrian Logue. Logue. It's a lot of big stuff swirling around golf at the moment, between this and Live. Not much of it to do with the actual playing of the game. I guess not, although the topic we're discussing today kind should be all about playing the game, because that's what we're advocating for, Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Although both sides, I think, in this argument, think they're advocating for that. They are. Golf feels sidetracked, I guess, is the point I'm making, by a bunch of stuff that's not to do with golf. That's sort of where we seem to be. Also in studio and representing the more youthful members of golf's broad church, Golf Australia Magazine Deputy and Digital Editor, host of the magazine's recently launched Playing from the Tips podcast, Jimmy Emanuel, looking pretty happy not to have had to write an intro script, I must say, Jimmy, perhaps even smug. Yeah, I'd say smug. Smug. Nobody likes smug. No. Don't do smug. No. Just Uh, my Wednesday morning smugness. Yeah. Enough about us. Let's meet today's guest. As I mentioned at the top, Matt Mollick is one of the founders of the Rollback Alliance. And one of the game's most passionate advocates for the importance of golf course architecture. He's also one half of the reasonably new Australian Golf Passport podcast, which we'll also find out a bit about today. Big hello to Matt. Matt, good of you to take some time. Thanks so much for having me, Rod. Great to speak with you guys. Yeah, literally the least we can do. No, anyway, it's uh, it's going to be good fun. Uh, Give us a quick take on your initial rollback thoughts, being head of the Rollback Alliance. And, not after head, that. As, and as head of Rollback Alliance, you must have been inundated with media requests <laughs> over the last <laughs> week or so. Is, uh, you know, how, uh, we're honoured that you've, you've chosen to appear on our podcast. Thanks, Adrian. While um, the barrel put might... your hand in and picked us out. I'll do good, good. <laughs> yes. They might not have been quite as numerous as you first suspect. <laughs> okay. But anyway. Oh, okay. Um, Initial initial response. I was really happy that something actually got announced. Mm. It was it was less than I was hoping for, mm-hmm. but I was happy to finally see some action because we've been talking about distance insights reports, feedback periods, consultation with various bodies for years and years and years, and that two thousand and two line in the sand seems an awful long time ago. Um, so at least at least something has happened. Yeah, some of us remember a 1998 line in the sand with driver technology as well. So there's been two lines in the sand, and yet we can't even see them in the rearview mirror. It feels to me, Matt, like part of what this has done is set a tone. Would you agree with that? And that's important. Yeah, I think the USGA and the RNA have been very conscious of trying to do that for the last few years. They've been very measured, consistent. Uh, gradual in their in their communication to players and to manufacturers, uh, and and hopefully that hopefully that tone continues. Mm. They're very much a measure twice, cut once type of organisation. Yeah, you also get the feeling that it wasn't necessarily unanimous discussions between the USGA and the RNA. It feels like the RNA perhaps were keener to go ahead with this than the USGA, and they've brought them along. Which is Mike Wan seems to have made a difference, doesn't it? Uh, 
Oh, yeah, well, I wonder. Surprising given his. I think he changed tune. It was only 12 months ago he was talking yeah. about getting a new driver under, under the Christmas, Christmas tree and, yeah. you know, needing to be excited about that. So yeah. I'm not sure about that. But they've what <laughs> they have rough. done is. That was very rough. <laughs> <laughs> politically, which is what this is now, this is the political part of the exercise, isn't it, Jimmy? You've got to sell this now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's their job because yeah. the other side of it are going to sell the other side. So, yeah, they've got to try and get everyone to buy in, which is kind of interesting given it doesn't affect everyone. So. That's the- well, this is interesting. There's a lot of people up in arms, mate. What are people perhaps misunderstanding? It feels to me like there's a lot of misunderstanding amongst golfers about what's happening. Yeah, I think everyone feels like they're going to be playing a shorter ball and that it's going to make a substantial difference to them. I think a lot of people looking on haven't realised that that model local rule that the USGA and RNA have spoken about is really only going to apply to elite competition and it gets rolled out at the start of 2026. You and no, I go. no later than January twenty twenty six, I think, is the language they used, which is ah, which is yeah, code. That R- R- that's R- code RNA code for, for yeah, <laughs> we could do it earlier. Yeah, okay. So yeah, you and I go to Mangrove Mountain next week, Rod, and we're not, or or at the start of twenty twenty six, we're still going to be using the balls that we've used in the previous twelve months, the previous few years. It's not really going to apply to us. Yeah. So can no, I no can I suggest that if you and Matt go to Mangrove Mountain, he's going to be anything but smug? <laughs> yeah, so you'll certainly be puffed by the time he finishes. It's a hell of a walk at Mangrove Mountain, I can tell you. And you've got to do it twice. The great thing about Mangrove is <laughs> as you're coming up the night, you think to yourself, oh, just one lap to go. <laughs> Joy of, uh, can I, jo- can I, I'll just correct myself. It's no earlier than 2026. <laughs> so oh, really? The actual okay. opposite of what I just said. You imbecile. <laughs> Okay, so it could be 2029 or 2030. Before everybody starts calling in. Indeed. Uh, There's a bit of genius about that, isn't there, Matt, on the RNA and the USGA's part? This is why I think this model local rule idea politically as a cell is so much easier because they've been quiet for the moment. They've let let all the controversy run. They haven't said much since making the announcement. But their answer to everything can just be, but there's no change for you. And that's really important, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of bifurcation without having bifurcation, that one addition to the rule book doesn't mean that pros are carrying a totally different set of rules to us. Um, that change is able to be implemented in a tiny little way and the masses aren't affected. And I wonder if in the back of their minds, the USGA and the RNA are thinking that they'll see a trickle-down effect where Adrian goes to Pimble or Concord or... Jimmy goes to Royal Sydney and thinks, oh, I'm going to try myself out from the tips today and I'm going to buy a sleeve of these pro balls and see how I fare. And then more and more people embrace that change mm. and we see more widespread use of that ball. Maybe mm. maybe that's their hope. I'm not sure. You're the equipment guy, Jimmy. Do you see that happening? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, there's always been a market for people wanting to use the stuff tour guys use. What percentage do you reckon? For, for the ball in particular? <coughs> I can it's, see a curiosity factor. It's a, it's a small like percentage for sure, but it's a big market. Uh, to give you an idea, TaylorMade once upon a time was the, the company that made more tour-specific gear than anyone else. So there was drivers and stuff that was T-stamped in the hosel so that you knew it was made for the tour. Now, that meant in certain clubs they had hotter-faced fairways or they had hot-melded drivers all of which was designed specifically for a tour player to use. Now, that didn't necessarily benefit someone, but there was a huge aftermarket sale period for that on eBay. TaylorMade stopped T-stamping. Now, part of that, I am certain, is because they were losing those sales because those were being sold by people who were getting them off their tour player mates and everything like that, and they were selling for 
astronomical amounts higher mm. than what the retail model was. Titleist putter ma- manufacturer Scotty Cameron marks his tour putters with a Circle T. Circle T, yeah. Circle T putters don't go for less than a couple of thousand dollars. A retail Scotty Cameron is seven ninety nine off the top of my head. So there's this market for it. So and they'll pay overs as well. But and it's that, not a market that the manufacturers benefit from. from well, they, they haven't in the past. Yes, exactly. They did start to probably a little bit when the groove rule changed because you could buy groove because amateurs had a grace period. Yeah. You could buy the new grooves or the old grooves if you were playing you know, elite competition eventually, not instantly. And people who wanted to play elite golf eventually bought those new grooves, for example. Um, so there's always a market for it and, and there's people who are interested in it to test themselves, like Matt says, but also just to play the same thing, um, which is going to be the argument of the equipment manufacturers and I think the most interesting one is that Titleist were obviously very strong on it. They've been very strong on it for the whole time, and no one was surprised with that response. We've got the most to lose. Yeah, they, they, they've they built their branding of the number one ball in golf, which is based around tour usage and what they call leadership. Understandable that they're upset by this. They referred to the 2002 joint statement of principle by the USGA and RNA that says, you know, we believe in the retention of a single set of rules for players of the game, and et cetera, et cetera. So they've got a point in as much as we may all agree that this is a positive move and I fall into line with that, it's going against what was set out. Whereas TaylorMade have come out this morning, Australian time, and said, we want to hear from golfers. Now, the golfers they're going to hear from are not going to be affected by this. No, that's muddying. What a cop out. Which is to, it is to muddy the waters. It's to have ammunition to go back. I mean, these companies have been working at a new golf ball for a long time and they all have facilities set up that make specific golf balls. To give you another idea is uh, one of the companies who I won't name, but has a golf ball model that was primarily built around retail success in the premium golf ball market rather than tour success. Because I can tell you, having done club fitting and golf ball fitting myself for a long time, a lot of people use golf balls that aren't necessarily suited to them. They're suited to a player that's outside. And that's both ways. Golf ball that's not good enough for them and golf ball that maybe is too high a compression, etc. One of these companies had a, a really retail focus with a premium ball. They then required to make so many different variations for the tour players to use them that the number on the USGA conforming list was huge. I'd say they'd be quite happy to just be making one or two models for the tour and not making a whole lot because the R&D costs that everyone's so worried about these poor equipment companies incurring are going to be lesser in that case. So, you know, it's it, there's going to be people who want to buy this stuff. There's going to be people who have got no interest in it. I, I don't see... Will they know? If I went and bought the tour ball in 2026... Yep. Would I even notice it was different? Well, there's no there's no uh, regulation as to how the golf ball has to get to that dis- maximum distance as of yet. So it has to, it, it, there is a maximum distance. Mm. There is not it has to spin at a certain RPM or anything like that that I've seen, a direct you know instruction as to how to achieve that distance. Mm. You're suggesting they might need a different dimple configuration well, or a different size somehow or a different because you're going to make it go a, a less yeah. different. So if you're making it spin more. Like something that's a physical, yeah, like going to be noticeably yeah, different. You could, well, you could physically see the flight of a golf ball from a golf ball now that at a certain speed you can get to it X distance. Yeah. And then there's the new golf ball that you can only get to X distance at that same club head speed. It's, speed. Got, it's ball flight is going to be different. You can't just make a thing that just falls out of the sky and has a you know immediate 
got some sort of a sense. limited that, switch that, that right, goes, a, oh, hang on, we're going to get above 317 yards, yards here. Oh, quick, drop out of the Get sky. out of the sky. Yeah. It's going to fly differently for sure. Is it kind I, of, I think it's really important that it looks different. Absolutely. The ball has yeah. to look different. And I don't know that a stamp like MLR or something like that as a stamp on the ball is going to get the job done. I, I would love it to be bigger because I might even use it. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> but, but a tiny bit bigger. Just I think it's just so important that it be completely transparent that you're using the correct ball. I'm campaigning for the return of the two-tone ping ball, uh, Matt. What do you think about that? That's how you pick the no tricks and the no. do it. Ye- yellow, don't answer yellow, that, Matt. pink, and you know that's don't, how you differentiate. No, don't no, don't answer. Strixon doing two-tone don't. balls. Strixon already do it. It's called the divide. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, so you can see your spin rate, your spin whether it's spinning backwards or it's spinning go. sideways, and you can line up your parts. Could they do a transparent ball so you can see the innards? Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> Volvic used to do that almost. Did they? Yeah. Where have I been? I've missed all of this. Sitting in this studio with smugness. <coughs> Pardon me. All of that's kind of irrelevant in some ways, Matt. These are the details of what's a big issue. Why in the big picture does the ball need to be rolled back for elite players? Well, I, th- I think it needs to be rolled back for all of us, but we'll get to that mm-hmm. a bit later. You're radical. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, think, I think the scale of the game has just got too big. Uh there's a there's a significant percentage of golfers who aren't that skilled, who are really strong and fast, who hit it too far, and that has that has implications far beyond architectural considerations or whether or not uh, scores are too low or people find courses too easy. I think I, I think golf's just bloated. Mm. I tell you, USGA's done work on the footprint of the game, haven't they, and how it's grown over the years, not just at tournament venues, but golf courses more generally and more broadly and so there's issues around that let's go through some of the you've been pretty active on twitter this past week as nobody will be surprised to hear and you've had a couple of uh run-ins with brandall chambly who had some things to say run us through his point he says scientifically there's no case to be made for the ball to fly less why has he got that wrong i think brandall's selective in his use of statistics he sort of has a preconceived idea and then searches for numbers and data to confirm his initial suspicions. Uh, it's called the Texas, seems- Texas sharpshooting approach. What's it called? The Texas sharpshooter approach. Where did you pull this from? Where you, you, shoot, you just shoot randomly and then you move the target to where your bullet holes mostly fit. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I'll what, go with that. Does that what, fit, That's Matt? what Brandall does. Is that what Brandall's doing? Or, th- or cherry picking. He also he also seems blissfully unaware that pro golf is played anywhere other than the US PGA Tour, mm. which astounds. Uh, so much American centric discussion in this stuff, isn't there? There really is, and it does seem it seems principally a US problem. And I know Jeff Ogilvie spoke about this years ago about different ball requirements for different arenas and if we were always playing on firm links courses that were windswept that the players would be going back to their manufacturers and asking for different balls. Um, it, it does seem like a principally US-based problem and and Brandall certainly looks at it with the USA glasses on. Uh, he He's used some of Mark Brody's statistics to look at mean driving distance increases, mean approach shot increases. And if you're going to look at averages in those statistics, I think you lose a significant amount of detail with the people at 
that far end of the bell curve. And from a safety perspective, uh, from a future perspective, as Clates always says, the freak in one generation is the standard in the next. Uh, if, you, if you're not focusing on those guys, I think you're missing a big piece of the puzzle. And, and just from a scientific method point of view, just looking at approach distances doesn't control for the most obvious thing, which is all of the other factors that have been used to com- combat uh, the equipment to this point, which includes pushing tees back and buying properties so that you can extend golf courses and uh, changing agronomy. agronomy practices, especially in America, have changed so that you know you can mow into the grain or... Uh, soften fairways up in certain spots and have rough that grabs, none of which we want to do in the great golf courses here in Australia or in the UK, but and, and nor should we. But uh, that that approach thing I find particular like approach distances, I find that particularly offensive from a evidence point of view because it doesn't control for all of those other factors. It do, it just doesn't mm. it doesn't tell us anything about how far people are hitting the ball. The same when people start to look at scores and think that scores are relatively static or they've flatlined. Right. And they pay no consideration to rough thickness, fairway width, green firmness, pin positions, a, a myriad of different factors that have been changed to try and combat better ball and club technology. Yeah, yeah, forget about the scores. It's not, if that's the answer to a different question, that's the answer to what sort of a state is golf in at the moment. And, and that's distracting from the question of how far does the ball go? If you want to measure how far the ball goes, just get Iron Byron out and you know, measure at different swing speeds and see how far it goes. Like all of this other stuff distracts from that. It doesn't answer that core question. And, and the USGA and RNA's approach has been just to simply, and it's, I think this is an important aspect of the whole discussion, they've simply an- answered that one question, at this, ball, at this club head speed, the ball should go this far. And, and that's, that's the whole entirety of what's new, really, in this announcement, because nothing else here is really a surprise. They've prepared us for this with the series of reports over the last few years, and we knew it was coming. Well, I guess what is a surprise is that they're not touching clubs. I don't know that's such a surprise. I don't well, think that, at least surprise. it's something, it's something it's a, new that it's a we've much learned. more difficult to the, sell clubs. The, the new things we've learned are they're not touching clubs, and we'll get into why. Yet. Um, they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're not touching clubs yet. It, it's it's yeah. Let's see. Uh, the they're maintaining three hundred and seventeen yards as the distance that the ball should go at one hundred and twenty-seven miles per hour club head speed. Yeah. Um, so you calibrate to that, and that allowed them politically to have the line of. We haven't shifted anything from 2000 or 2002, whenever the last announcement was made, because that was the the yardstick back then. So they're saying essentially nothing's changed, which was a nice way for them to be able to sell it. And it's probably the reason why they haven't rolled back further, which is what a lot of people would have liked to be back to sort of 1995, Yet. 1990. Yet. I think we underestimate sometimes, and it feels easy to do because it's easy from the outside to look and go, oh, they've messed this up, they've messed that up. I think we underestimate just how clever some of the people at the USGA and the R&A are. Mm-hmm. Once you've opened the door on a rollback golf ball, there's nothing to stop you rolling it back further again in the future. You can already hear the announcement in five years' time that these things are up for constant review as technology and circumstances change and change the intent of what we were trying to do. We will feel free to change the rules that govern it. 
once you're only doing that for the pros and everybody else who plays golf realises it doesn't affect them, you don't get any outrage from the public anymore, you can start to do what you want with professional golf eventually, I think. That's not a short-term goal, but I can see that in 10, 15, 20 years, like almost all other professional sports. You're a rugby league fan, I think, Jimmy. Do they change the rules of the game every year? Yeah, absolutely they do. Tennis? I think, Probably yeah. not, but that you, we can get to that I kind think, of stage. I think that takes a simplistic <clears throat> view of how the people at the USGA and RNA look at the rules of golf. This is a specific problem that they've set aside to address, Mm -hmm. and they see it as we're going to address it once. The the 2002 sort of number, the Pro V1 came in 2001, in 2000, sorry, late 2000. They don't want to go back beyond that. That's a revolutionary change. And to get golf balls going back beyond that period will then require significant, significant Mm R&D. Now, saying to your some of your chief stakeholders already we want you to stop going any further but going back beyond this technology standpoint is a big ask i think all that approach that you're recommending does is encourage the tours to make their own rules because they run professional golf these are these guys trying to look you know at 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 the rules in general and just this little bit of an issue they've got right here and they think we can just rein it back here because they know that the equipment manufacturers will work on ways to try and get some of this back, try awesome. and get try and get you know things moving in the right direction. Mm. Now, the reason players are so upset, and I know, is speaking to a couple of them, and you just got to listen to them, is they feel slighted because they've completely geared their game towards how golf is right now. Mm-hmm. S- distance has become more and more important in terms of you know ability to win golf tournaments whether we go into scoring or whatever that's another matter but to win golf tournaments to stand out the way golf courses are set up the way competition is so they gear their golf game their practice schedule their time which is all highly balanced and and finitely Mm -hmm. looked at to achieve maximum distance as a primary focus to then make scoring the golf ball easier if they keep coming up with new changes and going and going again as opposed to what you mentioned with rugby league and stuff, which are slight tweaks and stuff like this, this is a more major shift. As much as we might have known it's coming, it is a more major shift to take the piece of equipment that is integral to the game for every single person, whether they're playing one hole or they're playing a 72-hole golf tournament, and change it is significant. So they won't continue to come back and tweak again and again and again. You know, the, the RNA and the USGA, despite setting the rules for tour pros and elite golfers, are far more concerned about the rest of golf, I think, I, I think there is far more far more of a focus from us about what they think about elite golf all the time. Well, that's an interesting idea. I'm not necessarily convinced about that. I, I don't see the professional tours ever making the mistake of trying to get into the rules business. That would be a disaster. Well, for that's them. Well, that, but that is the that is the I understand that similarity you draw uh, when you talk about NRL <clears> because. The NRL changes its rules every year. Rugby league doesn't change its rules. Right. Matt's it's only from, the professional game. Matt's from, from Victoria. AFL this year, at the AFL level, will have four referees, four umpires, I should say, use my right language, uh, four umpires. The local white, footy... White de- maggots, aren't they? Isn't that what they're called? <laughs> the local footy club down the road is not going to have four, four umpires. umpires. Okay. So the professional level is changing the the rules because and and to draw a likeness when people say oh i like watching rugby league and it's the same it's not the same they're playing a completely different game like professional golfers are playing a completely different game to the wednesday comp at mangrove mountain but it is the (laughs) the league is setting those unique rules for that specific competition not the overarching not the overarching rules of the game which are still in place 
which is where the USJ and RNA won't want to keep advancing further into setting more rules because they know the blowback comes. And while they're standing apart and going, we're going to you know, make a slightly separate rule for elite golf, they don't want to push too far away from the idea that the rules are the same for everybody no, because they know that's a key tenant of, of what the game is. I'll, I'll question that a bit later. I think people are relying very heavily on something that I'm not sure most golfers really care about, to be honest. Uh, I, think, I think it is important. Having st- stood there and sold a lot of golf equipment and dealt with a lot of golfers in retail environments, it, it's got more impact than you think. But again, like the people who are going to buy the tour stuff, it's not as it's not the whole of, not the, the, whole of the golf retail market, for example. Yeah. Um, there is a certain amount, and young guys, particularly kids and stuff, looking at what golf balls marked on the side of Adam Scott's hat, once upon a time, no longer, wanted to buy the same one. Sure, that's the case. Um, but there's also... You know, brands will shift to more of a brand presence and a model presence to sell that Titleist is the important thing, not Pro V1. What do you reckon, Logue, about all of that? Yeah. So I, it's complex. I, it's a there's real a, complexity. a couple of things I want to touch on. Something Jimmy mentioned there about um, the manufacturer's uh, R&D and what they can do to differentiate under these new rules I think this is something I haven't heard talked about at all, but the way the rule or the way the proposed change has been communicated that there's this maximum of uh, 317 yards doesn't take into account what the shape of the bell curve looks like behind that. So that's just the outlier at the far so end. The longest, of the longest, curve. longest hitter is there. That's right. Um, of course, if you can achieve higher club head speed, then you can go beyond that outlier. But, um, you know, so that's another thing that they need to consider. But taking that out of the equation, the overall average can be lifted up and the game is going to be longer than it was in the in 2002. So there's, there's a – and they can do that via technology. Like if the, all of the misses are less penal, then – the bell curve shape behind that 317 yards is going to be tighter and closer to the extreme. So this, like, it'll have less standard deviation. So overall, golf will still be a lot longer than it was in 2002. And I, I'm a little bit concerned about that. I think the RNA and USGA have have compromised on that and not and not spoken about it. But I'm, I know that they would have modelled that. Um, but they've thought when they try and sell this to the public, the talking point has to be this really simple, easy-to-understand number, 317 yards. So they've gone that out. That's They can't start talking about standard deviations and bell curves and things like that. They've just got to have this simple number. But in doing that, they've had to make this compromise where it, it won't be rolled back to 2002 levels. The, the manufacturers will already know that, that they, they've got this ability to raise the, the average. Mm. Matt? I think one of the other interesting things to consider is spin rate. There was no stipulation regarding minimum spin rate or a range of uh, spin rates that would be permissible under the new testing criteria for that elite ball. And it's quite possible that we end up with a ball that doesn't exactly behave the way that some people expected it might under this new legislation, but in in fact flies a little straighter for most so that those misses aren't as bad or are 
there's less of a, a penalty for a really poor strike, and I, th- I think that would be dismaying. Hmm. Hmm. It's easy to see how quickly you wade into complexities that have really got nothing to do with the game. The ultimate goal of all of this, I think, for most of us, Matt, was the thing that makes golf unique is golf courses and their relationship with the game, which is what all this is about. It doesn't matter at Top Golf whether you hit at 350, 360, 250. None of that actually matters because there's not a there's not a designed piece of ground that you're playing over. And I feel like we lose sight of that with these. Once you start to talk about bell curves and standard deviations and all those sorts of things, you lose what the point of all this kind of is, both at the top level and further down. And I think that's what the Rollback Alliance is about, to try and keep that discussion simple about why the ball going so far is a problem. The reality is you could easily remove all of the USGA's restrictions and create a golf ball that went, I don't know, what would be the maximum? They might be able to get a ball that goes 400 yards for Jimmy. That's quite possible. Nobody's campaigning for that. So I think everybody understands the notion that there's got to be some balance between how far the ball can be hit and the grounds the game is played on. But it gets lost very quickly in these discussions, doesn't it? Definitely, because it's a really it's a complex issue with stacks and stacks of moving parts. Uh, I heard Chris Solomon on the No Laying Up podcast over the weekend talking about people's perceptions of the issue, and he said a really neat thing in that people care about distance even if they think they don't because if I was to say to you your driver now goes 410 or your driver goes 185 you care about what mm. what performance is actually reflective of, of, of what happens when you go out onto the course and so distance does make a difference to you and it's got to be in scale with the arena on which you're playing uh, and, and that you're right Rod that gets lost an awful lot of time yeah, the, one of the real problems with distance perception is that we lose sight of the fact it's relative. In the 80s, 280 was long. Long is just dependent on whatever else is being hit. Mm-hmm. And so this notion, oh, he's a long hitter. We hear this all the time. We, in fact, we've built it into the game, the language. Thing, oh, he's long, he's long, he's a bomber, he's a bomber, he's long, he's long, he's long. That actual number doesn't add, doesn't matter as long as longer than the others. So if, if you tuned my driver so I only hit at 185 and didn't do anything to Jimmy's, yeah, I'm not going gonna, gonna to hate that. But if relatively we stay the same, then the net impact is nil. But we don't yeah. we don't seem to see the common sense of that, do we? No. There was a, a scratch video of Tiger teeing off on 18 at Phoenix, and I think he was paired with Rocco Mediate, and he'd taken a really aggressive line way left off the tee, over the water. He'd carried everything. And obviously this is a long while ago, and I think he rolled out to 326 yards and people were losing their minds. Mm-hmm. And and that was long. That was your frame of reference back then. And as you say, Rod, it's all relative because everyone else was hitting at 290 or 280. Suddenly this drive that was dozens of yards longer was eye-popping. And, and the actual number didn't it – doesn't, it doesn't make that much – difference it's just relative to his peers yeah that's right i only want to be longer than the bloke i'm playing with i always thought it was Whereas, with, importantly with that number the current driving distance leader on the pga tour would be rory mcelroy who had averages a yard longer than that drive than 326 wow. that's his average his average yeah. is 326.6 I, th- I did this experiment i think it was about two years ago i think it was about two years ago where we hit 50 percent of the tour exactly started to average 300 yards right average which yeah. means they're hitting as many further as they are shorter so what yeah. averages mean okay no, well, I don't need to explain it to you, though. Um, the um, the thing I always think about is uh, like the, that relative excitement thing. 
when you had like Norman in the Masters or something would hit an unexpectedly long driver on the 18th at winged foot mm-hmm. in 83 where he's driven it past the crosswalk. Like that, that was something I always look forward to when a commentator got excited about Norman driving yeah. it past the crosswalk yeah, because right. nobody expected to drive it past that's the crosswalk. That's why they put the crosswalk That's why you put there. the crosswalk there. It's exactly. Safe. Where do you put crosswalks now? We need a tournament director's opinion on that. Maybe get uh, plates, yeah. plates to uh, – <laughs> We're going to move the crosswalk. No one – who speaks for the crosswalks? <laughs> Golf's forgotten constituency, <laughs> the crosswalk. Uh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. It's interesting you mentioned those numbers. I remember it's a Tiger. Path. Tiger. <laughs> it's true. It is a it's in your, it's in your it is in your, yeah. You are the commissioner. <laughs> I remember Tiger saying a couple of years ago playing with Gary Woodland, uh, Matt, being staggered that I think Gary Woodland had tried to, in a practice round, tried to carry it over this bunker and he didn't make it and was complaining that he couldn't even carry it 325 in the air anymore because he was old and not hitting it as far as he used to. Couldn't carry it 325 over this bunker was the new sort of norm. So in just, what, 10, 12 years, that was sort of the change, which is the other change that we've seen too, isn't it? The ball stays in the air longer. Jimmy, it's a carry game in the modern era, isn't it? Correct. Norman's 280-yard drives often didn't carry 270. Yep. They might have carried... 265, the modern driver, they carry it not much short of where it finishes. Yeah, I mean, it still rolls. It still rolls, but it takes off and depends on condition and that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's much more built into carry with your driver than anything else because that's reliable distance and that is reliable result, Mm. more reliable result because you know where it's going to land and where it's going to finish as opposed to the ball that used to rise like a ballada and peak and then drop and, and run, um, it's it's a lot more about carrying your driver as far as possible because then you can carry the trouble too. That's right. Well, that's the whole point. Hitting it, hitting over it the 340, yeah. but you're carrying it 280 is not really a good mix because yeah. the trouble's going to be there and you've got to navigate it on the ground, which you no longer have complete control of. Yeah. That was that's, called sneaky long. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like a cricketer hitting a heavy ball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Players like predictability now because the game has become so influenced by launch monitors, by you know laser rangefinders, all this sort of stuff that you can dial in more detail that they want predictability. And carry distance is predictability yeah. because you know how far you hit that golf ball in the air. And, and to my earlier point about bell curves, their, their dispersion for that carry length is much, much Top. narrower Correct. than what it used to be because a mishit might go a lot shorter in the past, but now a mishit is is going to be, you know, only a couple of yards shorter, perhaps. I, I still remember we interviewed uh, Daniel Fox on, oh, yeah. on here, and he was worried he was getting out of the game because he was, like, he wasn't able to cover, like, 250 yards. <laughs> <or something. laughs> it's, uh, it's really left him behind. It's left a lot of players behind, hasn't it, I suppose, yeah. in that way. Uh, all of which, and I suppose, if you talk about professional golf, we think the courses are the most important, Matt. There's a whole bunch of us who think that. At the other end of the scale... What's your take on entertainment of golf in an era of long hitting and what happens to that under these new potential rules that we're looking at coming in 2026? I don't I don't think the entertainment factor diminishes substantially with this sort of change. I think you're going to see some shorter guys have longer clubs into greens than they might feel comfortable with and whether or not they're better iron players and they lace four iron to 10 feet from a long way back, that's entertaining. They miss a green and they've got interesting chips and pitches from around greens. I think most ardent golf fans are unanimous in that that's an exciting and entertaining element of the game. 
it, it's not being selectively applied to one tour and not another. I, I, I don't necessarily see how it's a, to the detriment of golf as an entertainment product. Where I am keen to listen to other people and keen to explore some discussions, particularly with Brandall, if they start talking about pro golf being totally different and, well, this is this isn't what you and I do when we tee it up on a Saturday. That lament for the embrace of bifurcation is a pretty baseless argument. If you're really starting to go down the path of there being two distinctly different games, any argument or any resistance to a rollback on the basis of a dislike of bifurcation just doesn't wash in my mind. Explain that to me again. I think I missed that point. I think my mind wandered off a bit. What do you mean? So the cries from TaylorMade, Titleist, uh, other brands talking about the maintenance of one set of rules, they'll they'll dislike the idea of bifurcation and, oh, now you've got the pros doing something that the amateur golfer isn't doing. If, if we start talking about pro golf being distinctly different uh, or, oh, no, you can't really apply that argument to a to a rollback because pro golf is such a different beast relative to recreational golf. If, if people who are against a rollback draw a clear delineation between those two forms of the game, but then object to bifurcation, I think you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. They're really, they seem more than ever to be two distinctly different sides of the game. Professional golf and recreational golf, you mean, Matt? Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. and I, I don't think you can object to a rollback while you acknowledge that point. Yeah, yeah, it, it, and that's one of the points Brandall's making. Something that fascinates me is your relationship with Brandall. Yes, me too. He hasn't blocked uh, you. He hasn't blocked you, has he? You're unique. Does he think of no. you as like sport? He's like a cat playing with the. Like he's a, just he's batting you yeah, around until you're around. finally exhausted but, and because can no you give fight. you give your own back better i think than what he's doing but it, it is it is interesting sport to watch you and brand you brand all jousting on twitter you first name him quite a lot which i like like you oh it's a flex isn't it yeah it's a power it's a, move like brand i think he uh, you don't realize I think he likes that yeah. <laughs> i don't swear i don't swear online he doesn't like that he'll block you instantly if you if you use profanity uh-huh. I, I try not to I try not to talk down i try not to insult um, I'd, I'd like to think that he'd think it's it's an educated exchange. Maybe he thinks it's easy to just beat me seven and six and prove his point, and that's why he hasn't blocked me. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I, a few times I've hit send and thought, oh, this is the last time I'm going to exchange with Shambly. <laughs> I'm going to miss him. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it hasn't happened. So, Well, I think you're, you're- – Three up with two to play. Maybe yeah. <laughs> well, it's the well, worst lead in golf. Because we're on a certain side of the argument. There'd be a lot of Brandle supporters who think that, you know, Mollica should have left the course three holes ago that the match was well and <laughs> truly over. There is something important about that, isn't there, Matt, in that he is probably the globally the most recognizable voice in the game in terms of analysis and commentary. So his position is actually very important, which makes it equally important that he be challenged and challengeable. Extremely so. I, I value the opportunity to engage with him and if I couldn't uh, I'd be I'd be weaker for it, and I think the rollback discussion would be weaker for it. Yeah, I agree because it, I disagree with him on most things too. 
but I don't think he's an idiot by any stretch of the no. imagination. I do think he's disingenuous sometimes that he goes looking for yep. headlines and controversy. That's part of his job as a media person as opposed to a golf pro. But he always works hard to make sure he can back up whatever it is that he happens to be saying. And so he's an important voice. I find it disappointing a lot of the time what he says because he's such a big voice in the game. But that's probably only because I disagree with him. I mean, he's, he's, most of his points of view are perfectly valid. They're just wrong. Yeah. But he flip-flops as well. So he does a bit. I'm not that not as much as people say he does. Yeah. I'm no Brandle Chambly fan, don't get me wrong, but I don't think he flip-flops as much as people say. No. I reckon he's been on both sides of the fence of this argument at least twice. I agree. Uh, I agree. Uh, Which tells you one thing at least, that he has, he's at least academically or intellectually capable of seeing both sides of yeah. it. And that's kind of important too. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's an issue with someone – Evolving their view on something. No, 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 this no, no, because no, no. you know I'm I'm certain that a lot of people who are very much for a rollback have developed their appreciation for what golf courses are and golf course architecture are, and and some people, for example, might get to know a person like Mike Clayton and the education that comes with walking around a golf course with him, and that changes their view from one way to the other. So there are new ideas and new words when you walk around. A golf no, they're Clayton. the same words. They're just said with more vigour. <laughs> and just in ways that you never imagined was possible. Before. Yes. Uh, indeed. I want to come back quickly to the entertainment idea, and I keep coming back to this. It's a point I've made more than once. Uh, as a product, golf is professional golf is really nothing more than entertainment. We take it more seriously, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's really nothing more than entertainment. What's more entertaining, Logue? Jack Nicholas hitting a one-iron across the water at 15 at Augusta, or Sergio hitting the flag with an eight-iron on the same. Oh, role. that's a great question because that that what is do we one want of the arguments that's been yeah. given. Like, is you actually want to see more wedges into greens because you can see the ball dancing around the cup? Oh, who's made that? Case? I've seen that case. Really? Yeah. Well, okay, I haven't, I haven't seen that. Like that. Thankfully. That's that's one that's been thrown around a lot. But yeah, no, I agree. I think the actual fact of the matter is when you watch Tiger in his prime, even with a wedge in his hand, he's usually hitting it to ten or fifteen foot. Uh, not he's not like aiming at the cups and having the ball dance around the cup. Once or twice in his career, you know, they have those highlights where he's, he's you know, not hit his line exactly and it's actually gone. It turned it up near the it's hole. near the hole, yeah. Um, but uh, the real magic of Tiger is being able to do that with five iron or four iron in his hand, hitting it, you know, to the fat part of the green from 220 yards or And actually something. hitting the green. Yeah. I think it's somewhere between 220 and 275. Hit. I think the stats say that he and Rory and those guys, that's why they separate themselves. And those Minji Lee as well, who beat everybody in the world of golf last year with uh, mm. proximity to hole. Um, with every uh, from with every iron from every length. Mm. Um, you know, that, that to me is exciting golf. Yeah. What do you reckon, Jimmy? I think the entertainment part of it is... One of the reasons probably that people may be on the other side of the debate to people like Matt and everything like that is the way the entertainment is sold, they've become so used to the other that you've been sold this message that the entertaining thing is the golf ball going further and the guys who hit it harder. So it's just a change in messaging around how it's sold when it's on TV. So much more of what, you, what you're digesting of tournament golf is on television is less and less in person. So watching someone hit one irons like Jack and watching the ball flight in person and reacting to that, you don't get that same experience watching it on TV, as good as the coverage may be. So then it becomes about, you know, talking about the difficulties of the shot in front of them, which has been less of the focus, has been about how far they've hit it down there so that they've got less of a club into the green. And less of those issues to worry about. I mean, if you think about entertainment, Tiger's a great 
great thing to mention. One of his most memorable shots of all time is the six iron at the Canadian mm. Open from the fairway bunker. Mm. He misses the green. Yeah. Well, he rolls off the green. That's, yeah, but he missed the it green. Did, it didn't stay on the green. But, uh, no. but he missed the green. That's exactly how you would have seen it too, perfectionist. You'd have got up there and been disappointed. Correct. But he's missed the green with the most impressive golf shot. You know, One of the most impressive golf shots have been hit is not because he flagged it and spun it around the hole, as Logue's talking about. It's, he, it's because of the way he went about that shot that was all the difficulties in front of him. Yeah. I mean, we there used to be, and I don't fall into line with it, but there was this big argument for a long time that the hybrid was ruining golf because it made the longer clubs that were the hardest clubs to hit the easiest clubs. Well, that's not even a discussion in the professional game because they don't need them. No, that's right. They don't hit them. Like they, they've gone back to iron-type clubs in that spot because they need the accuracy when they use it from the tee because that's the club. That's what that club's for. The hybrid's a chipping club, isn't it, really? Yeah, <laughs> and so, you know, like players will adapt and become better at hitting those shots that they're required. Mm. And then it's just about appreciating what that shot is in front. It's about watching what's in front of you, which is what entertainment shifts, entertainment changes, and the entertainment of it will change. But so much of the message has been about why it's entertaining that the golf ball goes so far, which it can be, but it can also be about, you know, other skills being tested. Yeah. It's about how a shot is set up and getting your understanding of what's at stake Correct. with that shot. Correct. I mean, John Huggan talks about the the reason he dislikes where we've gotten to is because the balance of all the different things that, that are exciting about a good golf shot and all the things that are required to play elite-level golf and win, the balance has shifted. Yeah. And so the balance, if it comes back, it doesn't make it any less exciting. In fact, it makes it more exciting because there's a balance between the creativity and the power and everything else like that, which has been shifted out of one way to the other. Hands up, everybody who in a couple of Sundays' time would like to see Rory contemplating the two iron five wood into 13 that Faldo did. I was thinking, absolutely. That I'm, I'm loving your Canadian Open example with Tiger, and the one that immediately comes to mind is Faldo's second to the 13th in 96. Ten most excruciating and delicious moments in golf ever where a ball wasn't struck. Yeah, and it's, it's also, where did that ball finish? He didn't make eagle, did he? No, no finished on the like, left corner. It was of the just green, the whole point was just that he got it on the green, not to go in the water. Yeah. yeah. So what was at stake was don't go in the water, yeah. get it on the green, don't don't shank it or whatever the horrible things were going through his mind <laughs> when he had the two clubs in front of him. But well, it's what Clates was doing. He reckons Clates reckons Faldo told somebody all he could see with both clubs when he put them down was it just going high right and into the creek. He just yeah, could yeah. not see a shot that that either of them got it on the green, which is pretty amazing. Can you still hear us, Matt? Yep. Yeah, good. Yeah, you've stopped, stopped recording there on our program, but that's okay. I've got a backup going here, so we're going to be all right. Um, okay. I, I know your answer to the question of would you like to see Rory face the two-iron five-wood or the one-iron across the water. Shouldn't Rory want that too? I sort of think Rory does, and I think a few of them do, but they're probably unable to say it. It's been muzzled. Yeah, and and I have to think that, I have to think that Justin Thomas has been spoon-fed as well. I can't believe he's that stupid. Um, oh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It could be. It could be. Maybe the, maybe the jury's still out. But those guys, like if if you – they tee it up with two others on a Thursday and Friday and they oftentimes would look at their playing partners and think, I should be miles ahead of you or how can you hang with me? This 460cc driver is two-thirds of the reason why you're even here and you shouldn't be yeah. 
doing up my bootstraps. Mm. Anything that makes the game harder for, for those guys where they can really separate and demonstrate their skills and, and show people the void that exists between them and probably 70% of the tour, surely they've got to embrace it. And, and Rory said as much in times past. This doesn't achieve that, though, does it, Matt? It doesn't achieve that, what we're talking about doing here. It, no, it, no. It, it fiddles okay. around the edges. It won't give us that. If that's your goal, this is not – it's not going to achieve that. Just in defence of the players in my mind, I, people think you're criticising the players and the way they play the game these days. They are really only answering the questions they've been asked. Mm. You're absolutely right, Jimmy. They've dedicated their lives. This is what Ram was talking about. What was the podcast? He said something on a podcast. I wrote about it the other week about you know not fiddling with the ball because – You've dedicated your life to answering the question of how far can I hit this thing off the tee to give me my best chance to score. It's perfectly reasonable. They've done, in some ways, probably too good a job of it in that sense, haven't they? That's the problem. So it's not the player's fault. And the players are not – it's not like they're not as good as players of the past by any stretch. They are at least as good, maybe even better. But they're just being asked different questions. Yeah, I I think the complete and utter dedication to that, you know, finding a method to succeed in the current – environment has been where they where they've gone to and where they've tried to differentiate themselves is those one percent improvements in the same skill sets but via you know complete analysis to then drive it justin thomas i think we spoke about it the other day that i can see why justin thomas that despite being one of the best players in the world and a shot shaper and, and having an elite ball striking ability justin thomas's game is built as well around swinging out of his shoes with driver. If he perceives the rules changing with the golf ball to be spinnier and, and bring back the flight, he knows that he doesn't have probably as reliable maybe a, a knockdown shot from the tee that's still going out as distance that he needs. You know, he'll develop one, but currently in his arsenal, he's got you know hit it as far as possible, less of a knockdown maybe. So he's going to have to rebuild his top end of his game, which takes away from time at the other end of his game, which is nowhere you know he needs this to score. So I can understand why a player like that you know thinks the way they do. They've they've built their whole. Justin Thomas was born in 1993. He's not played much golf with anything other than a no, Pro no. V1. Yeah, no, of course not. So you you, you you really are shifting something hmm. that's been a primary part of what he's done in a thing that he's dedicated his life to. So it's to you saying... He feels it's unfair. It's to you saying your piece of equipment that you need to do your job is now the core piece. We're going to change it to make it slightly more difficult like it was once upon a time. So we're going to take some processing power out of your laptop because we think writing was better when typewriters were around. I'd take that challenge. No, I understand. <laughs> that. But, yeah, but, I know exactly. What and and that's not my personal view that I think this is no, a no. bad move. No, no. But from a player who's just so focused on this is the thing that gets me my job done and makes me one of the best in the world, and then is the difference between me winning majors, and which I've is what I've life, set my but, life that's to exactly do. Right. Now you're going to just change it on. Now me. you're going to change it on me. I, I can completely understand why, and I can completely understand why. None of them have been very vocal about it otherwise because they're not sure. You know, I'm sure they've they've had chances to test golf balls. Oh, every there. one of them would have hit whatever the rollback version is going to be. Well, every yeah. one of them. Well, they, they may have. You'd think. I know a lot of golf pros who don't want to do anything that's not about getting better for the current thing in front of them. So it would, I think the most interesting thing would be to go th- to a PGA Tour event and ask them how many of them have actually read the complete USGA and RNA report. 
and how many of them have hit the golf balls, both numbers will be lower than you would think and hope. Mm. I wonder which ones are. Well, I was – I couldn't believe my eyes. I went back and had a look at it twice. Jordan Spieth is surprised about the new USGA and RNA proposal. It was a headline earlier in the week. Sorry, Jordan? Shocked. And I, I thought, okay, maybe he's got his head down and bum up and working on swing changes, but – the Distance Insights report has been published every year since Jordan was on tour, and I, th- I thought there's there's, there's there's one word you can't use, and it's surprise. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah. and and that I, I always get my back up a tiny little bit, and you might say, well, you can't draw a comparison between your industry and and the industry that these pro golfers find themselves in, but most people who go to work have to deal with some sort of compliance or regulatory issue. Mm-hmm. And, and that seems somewhat absent in pro golf. They don't even read the rules, Matt, most of them. No. They don't read no. the rules. Yeah, that's all they do in life is play golf, and most of them don't know the rules. So, well, You can call a, call a ruling in. But, yeah, clearly, yeah, I mean, the only new things we learnt were, you know, some metrics around this distance thing, that they weren't touching the equipment, and they, that, that equipment uh, includes they didn't mention no mention of clothing, <laughs> apparel change. This is a this is an interesting segue there, Adrian. I'm what interested a, to hear where you're going to go. What with a this surprise! One. Logues opened the gate to the left field and is now taking us out there. There's yes. no mention of clothing and the impact of clothing on distance because you, we all know that you know when you feel like you look your best, you might be hitting the ball a bit further, and you could look your best if you're getting dressed up in the gear from oh, the sponsor gosh. of this show, Angus and Grace Go Golfing. Yeah. Absolutely you can, particularly. Am I the only one here not on the Angus and Grace Go Golfing drip? Do they not sponsor your <laughs> Australian Golf Passport show as well, Monica? They do, Rod. Yes, nice. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not sure that they get as good at ad reads as they <laughs> That include the new women's lookbook that's just been oh, tell released. Me, tell me more about that, Jimmy. Go on to Angus and Grace Go Golfing's Instagram handle and have a look at the new women's lookbook that includes fishermen's knit vests and Japanese poly seersucker skirts mm. described by owner Matt Burns as very coolio. And I actually did have a look in there and I had some friends with me last Friday and they are very coolio, Rod, I can tell you. It's excellent. No, no. At 39 Williams have Street, you, Paddington, Sydney. Have you gone beyond the press release so that you can tell me about this sustainable cotton. I have had conversations with Matt about it and I'm going to get him to tell me more in a recording that I'm going to play to you privately and then you're going to come back and you're going to tell everyone else about it. Because that is, I'm genuinely interested. Fashion is not my thing, clearly, but I'm genuinely interested in that kind of thing. I was actually there with someone who does work in fashion the other day and he was talking to them about it and they completely understood it and it kind of went over my head. So that's why I don't it's, it's kind of important stuff because clothing, yeah, is. clothing is, a, is an environmental disaster. Yeah. So you don't want to be buying into that if uh, – yeah, that was very nicely done. Like, no. Did you want to say anything about Angus and Grace? Go, go, maybe there'll be a bonus if you mention them on another podcast apart from just your own, Matt. I'm playing tomorrow. I've got the outfit already picked out oh, yeah. and it's – Angus and Grace, top and bottom. Angus and Grace, go golfing. But there you go. Dot all, com. All serious, the pants are great. You've, I assume you've got the like the trouser. You're a you're a you're a trouser guy, aren't you? He's not a shorts Love guy, em. surely. Yeah. Love them. They're the best pants. The best golf pants I've ever owned by the length of the Flemington Strait. I must say, I say that about the shorts, and I wore the shorts on Saturday to a music festival that I was invited to. 
because it was hot and I was still wanting to look my best and I had comments on them. So You know what? It's the the back pockets are the distinctive looking part yeah. of them and they're basically like cargo pants pockets. So, they're extremely – tell- they're very useful. They're, you can actually put some stuff in your back pockets. What are you putting in your back pocket? Scorecard. Scorecard phone. They're big enough. There's to never been a pair of golf pants that you could put a scorecard in the back. I used to, you, like, we're getting distracted here, but I used to so often find golf pants. You put your scorecard in there, and as you walked, it would pop out the Pops top of out. your pocket because no it was popping too out with these pants. Okay, mm. uh, that's the pressure <laughs> of playing with the scorecard in your pocket. You think pros are talking about, you know, actually writing down the score? <laughs> it's the pressure of carrying it around and not losing it. There you go. First pro that takes it to Grace Cow Golfing, you'll be fine. Have I done away? I have a friend who uh, watches US uh, LPGA golf, and the percentage surface area of the yardage book hanging out the back of the. Oh, okay. oh yeah. You're they need to roll that ass. Yeah. Serious, serious anxiety. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe, really maybe anxiety someone. Inducing. I genuinely don't know how you swing a golf club with something, with like a, a short novel in your back pocket. Yeah. And how does the, does the Coolio skirt deal with that? It's got it. Oh, it's got it. Of course it does. Have to, yeah, sure. We'll have to field, field test it Yeah, and get back to you. We'll, uh, we'll see. Uh, I want to come to the golf passport show in a second, but the last thing I wanted to zoom out a bit, Matt, which I think you sort of started this. All of this is internal golf discussion, and if you didn't speak golf, you wouldn't be able to understand anything that we've discussed today. A non-golf has got no idea. Uh, and all of that's somewhat important to us who love the game and think that it should be in a certain direction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we zoom out, what does this look like? to the outside world of golf. I bang on relentlessly about golf's image problem. I feel as though if I didn't play golf, I'd be looking at this going, what are these multi-millionaires bitching about that they might have to change their little ball ball? Yeah, the, uh, Shaq had spoken on State of the Game over last weekend about the brands not particularly doing any favours for their ambassadors. Some of the pro players, Webb Simpson, Charlie Hoffman, Billy Horschel, JT, they they don't come out of this looking good. They're whinging about a handful of yards. Uh, I think that some savvy people will will think that they're blind to a much broader and much more significant issue, and and primarily an environmental issue. Uh, yeah, they. I don't. I don't. I don't think the pros are going to look. Great in the eyes of many. Which doesn't make the game look great, does it? And that's kind of important. I remember oh. watching a satirical thing for you. It might have been Sean Mickleff years ago. Logue did a sort of... Mickleff? 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 Yeah, Mickleff. people. That's Sean. how he pronounces his own name. Do you get... And? Mickleff. Right. Okay. Sean Have you Mickleff. ever had to say it out, out loud before? Uh, I'm sure I have said it out loud oh. before. Pleasure okay. to be here with Rod Murray. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called worse, Jimmy, by better. I can assure you. Sean, what do we what do we go? McAuliffe? Yeah, yes. that'll do. Okay, so yeah. Sean McAuliffe did this satirical piece where he's interviewing a golfer, and you know the golfer is. How did you find it out there? Is oh, it was difficult conditions, and he's responsible. What? what? Grass a little too verdant, was it? Sunshine a little too bright. That's how the outside world sees Absolutely. this stuff, isn't it? Is that important, Luke? What messages yeah. this stuff sends beyond the game? Yeah, and like the Webb Simpson comments about grow the rough and plant more trees, I think is such an American-centric view of the world, which uh, like doesn't take into account, you know, all of the the agronomy and the extra water and the extra lines of irrigation that courses like Windfoot uh, have introduced to have this manicured rough because you know that's what comes next, and 
uh, you know, whereas a lot of the rest of the world are like about, you know, how do we stop grass from growing in certain areas uh, because of, you know, we don't want to, it, it actually plays better from a golfy point of view, but also we don't want to have to spend all the money on the chemicals and maintenance and man hours that go into maintaining wall-to-wall grass in a place and having manicured rough. I, I, it's so infuriating that the, the playability issues aside, that the environment issues of advocating for more rough and this poor vegetation management that was proposed are, are just the go-to solution. It's like, it's, it's, it's very, I don't want to say it's it's an American-centric thing, but it feels very American-centric. So it's not lonely America. You might find it hard to find pros in Australia and the rest of the world who think that that's a good idea too because it plays to a certain skill set they've developed, like we were saying before. But it's extremely insular, isn't it, Jimmy? And is there a danger beyond golf? This is what non-golfers see. They see Adam Scott landing his private jet in Australia when he comes to play in Tiger Woods flying around. This is what the non-golf world sees. And when they hear this sort of stuff, it just must be, well, I don't know. To me, it's such a bad look for the game. I mean, you don't see Adam land no, that's very jet true. because Adam is very conscious of yeah. not looking like that's right. that. But um, look, I think I withdraw. I think so often golf gets ex- its external image wrong. Mm. In this case, no one outside of golf cares. True, it hasn't registered one iota until Tiger talks about it and talks about it significantly. And even then, it probably won't. And even then, it doesn't. You know, it not unlike you asking me if rugby league changes its rules. True. This is such an insular focus. Now, I, I agree with what Matt mentioned earlier that I think it's got a more significant impact with amateur golf, where everyone can now swing it harder because drivers are more forgiving oh. and all that sort of stuff, and the golf ball can go more offline and do more damage to cars and trees and all that sort of cars and houses and all that sort of stuff trees that was a good freudian slip um because of the power involved and then that is a problem for golf's external image but this this doesn't rate a mention you know like yeah you might get some people who cop you know they watch sports center and it comes up on espn and someone goes oh they're whining about something not going far enough but um no cut through beyond golf it doesn't have any cut through until are more significant until it happens or until Tiger talks about it. That's still really the measure for outside golf people. His influence is staggering, isn't it? We, we, we underrate Tiger. Which is, and it's interesting in terms of the timing. I mean, golf is starting to see, it's it's seen the peak of the yeah, external the, interest with what's going on with Liv and yep. it's definitely started to drop. I've, you know, not been on TV much this year. I'm still available, but I haven't. But um, What's that doing for golf's image, I wonder, you being on TV? Anyway, yeah bringing in thousands <laughs> but it it's sort of fallen off a little bit mm-hmm. look if this if this announcement had come in middle of last year it kind of would have got washed a little bit even in golf it wouldn't have no been. as in in golf it yeah, would have got washed a right. little bit but it's now on the backside where people were searching for golf stories and they might have found a way to spin it around and get a bit more interest externally but no one no one really has has noted this no. unlike the other things that have been going on in golf that have been more significant, like the introduction of the Australian Golf Passport podcast. Funny you should say that. How was that for a segue? Beautiful. Much, much, much better than the Angus and Grace Go Golfing segue that we were subjected to earlier. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the product, <laughs> I'll, I'll just the ambassador. Uh, tell us about the Australian Golf Passport show, mate, because it is good. It, it accompanied me from Melbourne back to Sydney in the car after the Australian Open in the back end of last year, which was fantastic. Uh, what's the point of it? Why'd you start it? What's it doing? 
Uh, thank you, Rod. You and you've been a great help. You've been a tremendous help to us in getting off the ground and finding our feet and lots of technical issues and you're a, recording. And you're a podiatrist, Matt. How am I helping you find your feet? <laughs> Surely, if you don't know where your feet are, <laughs> nice you're in work. big trouble. <laughs> Good work. Um, so I, I, I record it with Scott Warren, a mate up in Sydney, and we had the idea a few years ago that we would record this podcast that was basically a source of information for people travelling to Australia on a bucket list golf trip. Uh, which courses should I see? How do I get to King Island? Should I go to Adelaide? How many days do I allow in Tassie? What does my partner do when I'm playing golf on the Mornington Peninsula? And it's evolved a little bit from that. We've had the majority of our first dozen episodes, we've focused on a particular course of note or a destination that most overseas visitors would like to see on their trip to Australia. Uh, it's branched out a little bit in the the last half dozen episodes. We interviewed two pros from Sleepy Hollow last episode. They were down here for about six weeks and ticked everything off the list. Including we spoke with including raiding the Angus and Grace Go golfing shop, did they not, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, took about a third of the stock <laughs> exactly from that. Right. And including having dinner uh, with me. Is that right? Yeah. Well done, you. Ah. Yeah. Good on you, Jimmy. Uh, we, we interviewed Matt Goggin. Uh, we had a really cool episode where we interviewed Lily and Matt, uh, two longtime members at Victoria prior to the Australian Open. So they were able to, Lily Callow and Matt Griffin were able to speak about their home course prior to the world seeing it for that event. Uh, we're hoping to speak to Bob Harrison in the next month or so, but we'll by and large get back to that uh initial aim of saying okay this is our cape wickham episode this is the peninsula north episode this is the royal adelaide episode so that there's a spotlight on one particular course that people have a hankering to go visit and that's a hub to talk about some other stuff that you might do while you were there it reminds me in some ways matt i'm not sure whether you ever listened to it of rue mcdonald's old scottish golf mm. podcast mm. which was a basically a how-to guide okay you're coming to scotland that's a great decision from there it's really overwhelming if you don't know anything about it and it's a source of information to say right okay don't get in the car every day and drive from one place to the next base yourself here go and do this and i think that's partly what you're doing as well including with some of the off-course stuff which i think is kind of important definitely definitely particularly in some of those areas uh, around launceston the mornington peninsula adelaide you sydney you want to you want to go and see what those places have to offer apart from golf so and the did your sleepy hollow pro balk at the notion of doing the sydney harbour bridge walk up over the arch yeah, he didn't. He didn't want to do didn't that. Do I don't that. think he realised that you're sort of harnessed onto that yeah. big high tensile steel cable. Yeah, I'm with him. I wouldn't do I it. I was going to say you wouldn't have gone anywhere Not near to a it. Not a chance would you get me near that. I did that at as at dusk one night. It was amazing. You walk up as the sun's going down. You walk back. It's night time. When I worked at News Limited, there was a young cadet, and, and they were building oh. the bridge. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, <laughs> who? Before the bridge walk was a thing, who took it upon themselves to, oh, yeah. <laughs> in somewhat intoxicated, to uh, have a crack at the bridge walk, and of course they were caught in a somewhat dishevelled state as they came back down, and uh, it went right through there. So that was fantastic, but that was before the bridge walk was an option. But they managed to somehow break in, get up onto the the pilots. They were climbing up and around on the bridge, which is just bizarre. Nothing to do with golf. But Bob Harrison will be he'll be great on that because every time I've done something with Bob for a written story. 
you end up with about an hour and a yeah. bit worth of recording that you've got to sort through and pull the best bits out. And you often lose some of the best bits because it's not relevant to the particular subject. It's just Bob riffing on golf courses, and it's very, very cool. You, you have to ask Bob, Matt, about the lost golf course at his school, Riverview College here in Sydney, where mm. it's uh, okay. it's what first exposed him to golf was that they had a little golf course at the, Ooh, at the school. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah it's gone go. now. On the very big grounds and now all football oh, grounds. Also ask him if he might be able to dig out the original plan for Barn Boogle Dunes that they did. Oh. Yeah. He told me about that on the thing about golf, which is bizarre. He's a really interesting character. And then get him going on Seth Rayner. Hates him. Oh. Yeah, I remember Hates that. Him. Oh. His love for Barossa Shiraz and his his hatred for Seth Rayner, yeah, they're they're strongly held yeah. wow. positions. Yeah, he's an intriguing so. character, but plays both right and left handed. Carries half set of each when he plays. He's he's he's, he's either way. Terrific guy, really love it. Big yeah. big yeah, bear yeah. of a man, and really uh, really good guy, really interesting. So that'll be a good uh, a good episode, mate. It's been good of you to join us. I don't think we've solved any of the world's problems, but I think this is not going to be the last time we talk about this topic. Might be the last we hear from you about it. I'm sure, but it's been great to chat to you today, mate. Likewise. Just just really warning you as Thanks, well. Guys. Just warning you as well, Matt, that help that Rod's given you with the podcast. He probably considers that a contra deal with uh, you know, getting some What am I gonna get? Getting some work on your feet, maybe. That, oh, oh, that's I, that's an unbalanced hey, hey, deal hey. for Matt yeah. and the size of those things. I co host <laughs> a podcast about wounds with a podiatrist. I don't need Molica. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, watch just, like just out of the kindness of his heart. Isn't it? Pra- Actually, I want to give you a wrap for this, uh, Rod, and I'm, we're, we're going to put this in the show notes. That uh, yeah, you are practically a doctor, which practically is a joke a that you made on Shane Darby's oh, yeah, okay, podcast. Yeah. Oh yes, yeah, good. Uh, Did well Fer- on that the Furman really Bass podcast. That. Very kind. For somebody who doesn't like to talk about himself, that somehow managed to string out I didn't to shut over up, two hours. I didn't shut up. Yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, but it was very, very. Good. I also noticed some that Rod Murray highlights in there rejected my. Request to do something similar for the thing about golf, but you took up Shane's offer. So, took him about three weeks to convince me. I've been talking to you about it for years, but I just haven't tried that hard because it means work for me. Well, it's been done now. Yeah, it's been exactly, exactly right. right. <laughs> just drop it into the feed. I'll get him to send the episode. In fact, I recorded it at this end as well. I'll just. <laughs> he actually asks, "What's the that. thing about golf for you, Rod Morrie?" In there as well. I think that's one of his opening questions. Uh, it might be too. Yeah. Be talking uh, to the Golf Australia magazine. Lawyer. That's the firm and fast <laughs> golf podcast. Shane does a terrific job. You've been, it is. Ma- it is magnificent. You've yeah. been on the show too. He is. Better than he realises. Absolutely, he's yeah. really good. It's a very, fantastic. If you're into it, it's good. Show. It is. A, it's a commitment to listen to. I so. I tried to use the Logue episode to go to sleep one day, <laughs> so I was looking for something to try and sleep, and success in the no in the positive for both Shane and Logue. It kept me awake because I was interested, and then I had to turn it off because I was not going to get any sleep because I was actually involved in it. So, so if you haven't listened to Firm and Fast Golf Podcast, uh, go and have a listen to that. Not so much my episode, but he's got some really good stuff in there. Yeah. Lots of really interesting people. So, uh, Good stuff. Logue, thank you. Been a joy to have you along today. Thanks, Rod. And also, Jimmy, good to have you in this place. Thank you, mate. Episode 137, did we say? Sure. Yeah, episode 137, done and dusted. We'll be back to do it all again next time here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. <laughs>